Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet that you may rise and go, that, uh, then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, well, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, uh, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Before, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man lot and they drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they, t- they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone that you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy it. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who, who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside of the city. As they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near. Uh, enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Uh, Then the Lord rained on Sodom, Gomorrah, sulfur, and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And looked and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent, out of, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now, Lot went up out of Zoar 
and he lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Those both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his, ben, his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this passage, which is heavy and hard. It's hard to read and hard to listen to and hard to digest. Uh, and I confess, Lord, that I come to you with fear and trembling, having to preach this passage this morning. Uh, So, Lord, would you please uh, help us to see uh, who you are in the midst of this disaster? Uh, Would you help us to see both your justice and your mercy uh, in the face of so much brokenness and so much evil and so much sin? Uh, And help us, Lord, uh, to be confronted with the fact that you are a God who is both just and merciful uh, and that that is good news for us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This passage really does, this is is like one of the hardest passages to preach, okay? Like, can we just name that reality? Um, This is a very difficult text with very difficult things that run throughout it. Uh, And it challenges us as modern day Americans in a variety of ways. Uh, And so we we have to work our way through what it means. And some of you are probably thinking, oh my goodness, I actually came to church on the day that the preacher is talking about that story. Uh, for some of us, we hear this story and what it, what it brings up in our minds and in our hearts is images of hate-filled speech and bigotry, uh, religious zealots who kill people in the name of their deity, uh, and, and, and a passage like this makes, I understand that for some of us it makes a belief in tr- the truths of scripture, very difficult. Uh, and so I want you to know that I'm aware and sensitive to that, that that's how some of you are here this morning as you hear the story preached. Uh, secondly, for some of us, we hear the story and for us, the idea of God uh, being just is not a difficult leap. We've, we're familiar with the teaching of scripture uh, and for any variety of different reasons, we come in and we like, yeah, like that's not... Um, that's not a hard thing for us to understand, but the challenge might be on the other end uh, to, to look at Lot and consider God's mercy to a guy whose life is really just not that great, if we're just honest about it. Um, and, and so really this passage forces us uh, from two different perspectives to really be challenged in the way that we understand who the Lord is. It challenges us from one direction to see God as a just God whose justice is going to seek out for the, the good of the oppressed. 
But then on the other side, it forces us to realize that God is merciful in ways and merciful to people that if we're honest, we're like, why on earth are you being merciful to that person? Uh, And so really it's challenging us from both directions to understand and have a full appreciation of who the Lord is. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at two things. We're going to look first at the justice of God, uh, and then we're going to look at the mercy of God. Uh, and, and again, if you weren't here last week, we really, you know, it's, it, this is like the hazard of preaching in a series, right? Where every now and then you come to passages where if you weren't here last week, you're not set up for this week. Uh, and so last week really was integral for our understanding of the text this week. And unfortunately, um, we just don't have time to rehash the sermon last week. Uh, so if you weren't here last week, let me direct you to go back and listen to that sermon again, where we see God set Abraham up in this intercessory way as it's praying for the city, because those themes are going to reemerge and I'll allude to them uh, as we move forward here. All right. So God in chapter 18, the Lord comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm about to tell you what I'm going to do. Uh, the Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So we said last week that this word outcry is a word that is often used, not always, but it's often used when uh, it's the cry of those who are oppressed. It's the cry of women who are being attacked sexually. Uh, it's the outcry of those who are being, uh, being subjugated uh, and being wounded, right? So this word outcry is a really important word, and it shows up in the verdict that the angels give in verse 16. We'll see that in a minute. Uh, So the angels come, they've left Abraham, they've come to Lot, and what we see is that Lot is at the city gate. This is significant. Uh, The reason that this is significant is because to be at the city gate was in essence to be like a councilman for the city or councilwoman for the city, right? The, 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 The city fathers, if you will, the city mothers met at the gate. Uh, and, and they were the ones who were looking out for the needs and the good of the city. Uh, and so it's significant that Lot is at the gate, but it's also significant that Lot seems to be the only one at the gate. Uh, so immediately we're alerted to the fact that it seems like Lot is the only one who is concerned about the city of Sodom. And that's an important note for us to hold on to. Uh, as we move forward. So you, you hear the urgency in Lot's voice, right? The men show up, uh, he's at the gate, as is, as is the custom, he like bows down. This is a form of greeting. He's, he's doing all the same things that Abraham did. So if you were here last, two weeks ago, um, or maybe it was last week, and you saw how Abraham greeted the men, he's doing all the same things that Abraham did. And he invites them into his house. And the men say, uh, no, we're going to stay in the town square. And Lot presses them. He urges them, right? There's this urgency in his voice. And what does he say? He says, come stay at my house. First thing in the morning, you can leave. Uh, even the meal, it's said to be a feast. But notice the distinction. If you can recall, when we looked at the, at the feasts uh, of the, the feast that was celebrated with Abraham, Abraham tells Sarah, make, I think it was three seahs of flour, make a bunch of bread. Whereas here, we make unleavened bread. Leve, unleavened bread is bread that you make really fast. So even the meal, it's a feast, but it's a feast done in haste, right? Why? Because Lot knows Sodom. And he's trying to get these men out of the city as fast as he possibly can. 
So they've had their meal. It's the end of the night. They're going to bed and there's a knock at the door. And at the knock of the door, this is what we read. Before they lay down, the men of the city went, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called the lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. Lot went out and he said, don't do this. So so Lot goes out to the door, closes the door behind him. And he's, and he's fulfilling the role of a man who sits at this town square at the, at the city gate, right? He's, he's trying to speak prophetically and saying, this is not right. He calls it wicked. And the crowd presses and they then begin to mock him and taunt him. And so what we see is that even though Lot is at the city gate, he doesn't have the respect of the people. That's important. The the idea of Lot being presented to us as a fool is a theme that then permeates the rest of the passage all the way to the end in the scene with his two daughters. The men of the city are asking uh, for these two guests to be handed over so that they could be sexually assaulted. So you see here that the wickedness of Sodom is pervasive, right? We are told in in very specific terms, every single man in the city was there, young and old. Uh, It's violent, right? They're trying to sexually assault these two men. It is hard-hearted. The uh, lot is pleading with them, don't do this. Now he pleads with them in a really horrible way, right? Take my daughters instead. That's Horrible. We'll look at that in a moment. But, but they're not to be reasoned with. And it's insistent. They're trying to break down the door. Now, we said last week, this is hard. This is hard, right? This is really hard. And so we saw last week, right, that this is not the only place that talks to us about the evils of Sodom. We actually have a number of passages that unpack for us just how absolutely wicked this place is. Uh, And you can see in the next slide that list. It's the same list from last week. The very first introduction that we have to Sodom, we are told that it was wicked and it was sinning greatly against the Lord. All the way into the New Testament. Uh, as we see the, the, the city of Sodom is repeated, right? Uh, whenever its sins are described, these are the kinds of things that we see. Sexual morality, unhospitality, adultery, uh, violence, arrogance, not caring for the poor, haughtiness, lawlessness, and perversion. This is a bad place. Uh, um, you know, we, uh, yesterday was day of service. And, and, and you know, as I... As I, as I think about this, you know, I, I, this, the, the images that resonate with me, right, are hearing from our Afghan friends about the Taliban. You know, the Taliban are evil. You know that? Like, they're just absolutely evil. And this is the kind of city that Sodom has become. It is an absolutely evil place. And so the Lord hears the cry of the oppressed and he, and he goes down. He sends his angels. We saw this last week, right? He invites Abram into prayer. And inviting Abram into prayer, he begins to intercede. And he says, I've heard the cries of the oppressed. You know, the thing is that, that the, to hear the cry of the oppressed, that is something that still resonates for us today. I want you to think about this with me. I want you to, in our, in our culture, just thinking of America right now, the United States. And I want you to think that whether you are on the far political left or you are on the far political right, 
uh, we all instinctively know, right, that when things are not the way that they're supposed to be, that we want to cry out for things to be made right, right? So, so what are those outcries? I mean, you know, the outcry on the left, one of the outcries on the left, right, defund the police. One of the outcries on the right, stop the steal. And I'm, please don't, I'm not, I'm not giving credence to either of those positions, but you understand that the reflex of the heart, that when someone feels that they have been wronged, the reflex of the heart is to cry out. And that's what's happening. And the Lord responds when there's legitimate oppression, the Lord responds in mercy. The Lord responds in action. He may not always respond on the timetable in which we want, we know that at the end of time, God will bring uh, make all things right. But the Lord always will always respond to the cries of the oppressed. Now, what happens is that the angels render their verdict. Verse 16, the outcry, they use that same word, right? We heard it. We've seen it. We've confirmed it. The judgment, there's two witnesses, right? It's not one angel, it's two angels that go down. There's two witnesses. And on the verdict of two witnesses, God brings uh, the city to its final judgment. The, The dilemma for us, right? And the hard part for us is that even to the point that I made before, right? We, we've lost in some respects as a society, we've lost the ability uh, to agree on what is actual oppression. I say Taliban and we're all like, yeah, that's bad. We know that's bad. Um, but part of the dilemma that we have is that we oftentimes as a society can't always agree on what are true oppressions. Uh, and so as those of us who uh, follow Jesus, as those of us who follow and call on the name of Jesus, the guide that we have to help us understand what is true oppression uh, is God's word. He reveals to us in his word the things that we need to know in order to be able to follow him. Now, little rabbit trail here. So that's, that's the justice of God. But there's this like looming question that we have to address. Uh, And the looming question that we have to address is that if you are at all familiar with this passage and you've grown up in the church, then you know that this passage has often been used in conversations about homosexuality, uh, gay, LGBT, same-sex relationship, whatever terminology you want to use. Let me just say right at the outset that this particular passage is not primarily focused on that question. Uh, This particular passage is primarily focused on a different form of sexual morality, uh, that of sexual subjugation, sexual oppression, um, rape. Uh, But that is not to say that it is unconcerned with, the scripture is unconcerned with sexual morality in any number of different ways. This is not the only story that we have of a group of men attacking somebody Right, Judges 19, we have a story of a group of men uh, who, who actually do sexually assault a woman, uh, and she ends up dying as a result. Here we have a story of the attempt of that. Both are wicked because, because sex was not designed by God to be used as a tool for oppression. That's not the design of sex. The biblical ethic of sex the way that the Lord designed sex to work 
is that sex is for marriage and that marriage is for a man and a woman. And when we, and when we fall outside of those lines, scripture calls that sexual morality. But here's the thing, right? I would venture that in a room like this, that virtually all of us in some way, shape or form have experienced sexual sin, sexual brokenness, either by our own actions and desires or by the actions and desires of other people. And so the Lord, this is not a passage that the Lord says, like the second that you commit sexual sin, boom. On either side of this story, we have episodes of Abraham's life where he commits gross sexual sins. Remember, we looked at Hagar and how he treated Hagar. Before that, he passed Sarah off as his wife. The very next episode, he's going to pass Sarah off as his wife. We're not going to look at that passage because it's family Sunday next week and we're going to talk about something else. Um, but, but that's the reality, right? The reality is that Abraham is a broken, is a sexually broken man. David is a sexually broken man. The woman at the well was a sexually broken woman. The woman caught in adultery, like you just look at the story, King Solomon, virtually all of the kings of the Old Testament. The Lord is merciful. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, God calls us to a better way. In her book, uh, gay girl, good God, Jackie Hill Perry writes this. We know that it, that, uh, we, for we know that just as it was his will for Jesus to be crucified, it is also his will for all to abstain from all forms of sexuality that are not in accordance with scripture. For this is the will of God. She's quoting First Thessalonians 4 now. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. And there he says that sexual immorality is sinning against our own body. In Ephesians 5, he says, sexual immorality, all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now, here's the thing, okay? So we are, you all have heard me, if you've been at this church for any period of time, you have heard me say, we are being discipled by our culture. And one of the ways that our culture is, is aggressively trying to disciple us is in our views of sexuality. Relentlessly so. And especially for our children, this is really significant. I just heard yesterday of a, of a rapper who put out a tweet. Uh, it was on Instagram. Uh, that, you know, hey, PetSmart is giving away free pets and you clicked on the link and you went to a pornographic site. It is, it is aggressive. And so we have got to be vigilant and we have got to be pursuing a biblical ethic of sexuality. We have to be proactive. And so what that means is like, like recognizing one, that we are being discipled to think of sex and sexuality in a certain way. And that in many respects, it runs counter to the wisdom of God in scripture. 
So the things that we watch, the statistics on, por- on the use of pornography are staggering. We just prayed for, for um, human trafficking. You know, the, the statistics are that many of the, uh, the people that you see in pornographic images are sex slaves, that they're being trafficked. The, the places that we go, the things that we consume for entertainment, please understand, I'm not trying to be prudish because, because we all have different places in which we have to show wisdom, but, but this is important. Why is it important? How does the story end? It's a very interesting juxtaposition. Remember, we, um, Abraham uh, was told to do what is right and just and to teach that to his children and to his household. And that was the huge emphasis that we made last week. What do we see this week? What was the way that Lot discipled his children? He discipled his children by saying, take my daughters instead of taking these men. And then at the end of the episode, the way that Lot showed was that both of his daughters decided to get their father drunk and have sex with him so that they could have children. And so here's the crazy part, and this moves us into the next thing. We're like, that guy's considered righteous by God. And I confess to you, I have had the, like, I've had the hardest time this week wrapping my mind around that. And so you see, end of, the end of segue, that while this passage cannot be used as a bludgeon, it is absolutely instructive for us to remind us that Jesus is Lord over our sexuality as much as he is Lord over every other area of our life. Now, let's turn to the mercy of God, shall we? So we see the mercy of God uh, and his mercy is really quite staggering when we begin to realize who Lot is. Uh, We are looking for 10 righteous people. That's what the angels went into the city. They went into the city, looked for 10 righteous people uh, and they didn't find 10 righteous people. Uh, And so as a result, uh, they show mercy to the one person. I want you to look at the mercy that the angels show Lot. It's really staggering, the mercy that they show him. First of all, uh, it's really generous mercy. And it's generous because it wasn't just Lot. It was his daughters, it was his wife, and it was the men engaged to be married to his wives. Now, Now, think of who those three people are. The, the two men that are engaged to be married to Lot's daughters mock him. Uh, Lot's wife turns around, even though she's warned not to do that, she turns around and she's judged. And Lot's daughters thought it was a good idea to get their father drunk and sleep with him. And yet the Lord offered mercy to all of those people because of Lot. And we'll see why because of Lot in a second. Second of all, his mercy is patient. In verse 16, we read that Lot is lingering. In verses 19 to 20, Lot's trying to negotiate with the angels about where he's going to go. Five times in this passage, five times the angels say, get out of here. And Lot doesn't leave until the angels physically pick them all up and take them outside of the city. And in that sense, it is confrontational mercy as well, because the angels act actually had to physically remove him from the city. Sometimes God's mercy forces us to do things that we don't want to do. 
So you can see the conflicted nature of Lot here. Uh, 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 as the story progresses, Lot gets closer and closer to Sodom. You remember when we're first introduced to Lot, he moves close to, he sets up his, his, uh, his family, his tents, uh, close to Sodom. And then we read that he's in Sodom. And now at the beginning of this passage, we are told that he is at the city gate of Sodom. And as the story ends, Sodom is no more. But Sodom is in Lot's heart. And it's in his daughter's heart. So the lingering question is like, was there anybody righteous in Sodom? Everything in me wants to say, no, there wasn't. So I'm just honest with you. But, but scripture doesn't let us say that. Because in 2 Peter 7, we read this. God rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. I don't know about you, like again, like this is, I've been, this is probably, Chad can tell, like this has been the part of the text that I have grappled with the most this week. Actually, a couple weeks, because I knew I was preaching this a few weeks ago. Lot's righteousness is not perfection. Just as Abraham's righteousness is not perfection, just as your and my righteousness is not our perfection. The key for us to understand how on earth Lot can be considered a righteous person is found in verse 29. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot receives mercy because of Abraham. Lot is considered righteous because as imperfect as his faith was, he had faith in the God of Abraham. Genesis 15, we read that God, uh, God saw Abraham's faith. To, uh, Abraham believed in God and the Lord credited to him his righteousness. Uh, and, and that is, seems to be the exact same thing that is happening here to Lot. We get glimpses of this. Uh, the distress that he has when the angels arrive at the city. The way that he speaks to the crowds, don't do this wicked thing. And yet, and yet it's absolutely broken and flawed and sinful, right? Because his, in his internal logic, right, the Sodom in him thought, I'm going to protect these two men at the expense of my own children. Yeah, and I don't know what to do with that. I don't, but what the gospel says is that through faith, our most wicked of deeds are forgiven. What the gospel says is that through faith, our imperfect righteousness, our filthy rags are completely wiped clean and the righteousness of Jesus is given to us. Now it's anachronistic to talk about the righteousness of Jesus being put on law, but the principle is the same. That the Lord looked on Lot in the midst of his sin 
and declared him righteous because of the, of the intercession of Abraham. In the same way that the Lord looks at our sin, the Lord looks at our brokenness, the Lord looks at our failures, and because of the intercession of Jesus, he declares you and I righteous. Amen. This is Romans 3, right? The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. And so Lot's righteousness was not perfect, but it didn't have to be because it wasn't about Lot. Abraham's righteousness was not perfect, but it didn't have to be because it wasn't about Abraham. Your righteousness, my righteousness is not perfect, but that's okay because what gives us access to God is the righteousness of Jesus. Amen. Now, let's go back to the big picture here. So this story challenges us on two fronts. On the one front, it challenges us because our modern day sensibilities chafe at the idea that God would reign fire and sulfur, fire and brimstone is the way the King James, you ever hear like fire and brimstone preachers? This is where it comes from, right? This is, this is the fire and brimstone passage. Our, our American sensibilities, our Western sensibilities, our modern sensibilities chafe at the idea that a God would do that. And yet, when we, when we get past just the gloss reading of this passage and we read what's actually going on, what we find is a God who is committed to justice, a God who is committed to hearing the cry of the oppressed, a God who does not act rashly, a God who provided means of escape, a God who invited his servant to intercede on behalf of the city, a God who even in judgment, and there is judgment, like we can't like skirt that, right? The judgment happened. But even in judgment, it's not this rash, vindictive attack. It's very measured. And it's a response to the cries of the oppressed. But then on the same token, on the other side, we look at Lot's life. And let's just be honest. Like if Lot was like today, he would totally be canceled. Like we would look at Lot and be like, dude, you suck. You're out. And God's grace is sufficient for him, right? The Lord, and the Lord counts this guy who, like, he's kind of a despicable dude. And yet in the logic of scripture, he's, he's held up for us as God's people. He's held up for us in 2 Peter as a model of what it means to trust and follow God in the midst of evil. I don't get it, but that's how gracious God. See, even I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around that kind of mercy. And so this passage is, is pushing us. It's pushing us to have a much bigger view of who Yahweh is, a much bigger, more expansive view of who the Lord is. 
We can't, we can't pigeon him into the sweet teddy bear God who, you know, who, who like, likes the things that we like and is, and is on board with the causes that we're on board with. Yahweh will not be put in your box. He will not be put in your box. He will challenge you to see him as just in ways that do not make sense. And he will challenge us to see him as merciful in ways that do not make sense. And there's no tension there for him because that's who he is. And that's incredible. And that's who we're worshiping today. Uh, And so this passage is hard, but if we commit ourselves to explore what it says, and we haven't even, like, there's so much more. There's so many things that didn't make the sermon. Um, But if we commit ourselves to explore the teaching, what we find is not the caricature of a fire and brimstone deity from the ancient Near East, but of a God who is more just and merciful than we could ever dream and who and who's for us because of what he's done in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, we stand in awe of you. Uh, we we are, I am left, speak for myself, Lord. I am left in all of you. I am left uh, recognizing that even I am guilty of making you fit into my categories of justice and mercy. Uh, and so, Lord, um, we confess that to you. We ask that you would forgive us